It's the age-old philosophical problem of evil. If God is good, why is there wickedness in the world he created? Is he just not powerful enough to stop it? Or does he just not care? Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares tackles this pressing issue. Welcome to Focal Point. I'm your host, Dave Drewy, and I always look forward to the end of the week when we settle down in the pastor's study to answer some relevant and timely questions. Now, if you have a question you'd like answered, send it along to us at facebook.com slash focal point ministries. And at the end of the program, I'll share some other ways to get in touch. But right now, here's Pastor Mike with Focal Point's Executive Director, Jay Wharton, for today's edition of Ask Pastor Mike. Jay? Pastor Mike, we're going to take a little bit of time to answer some important questions from some of our listeners that they've sent in. And not to start you off with a softball here, but uh, a listener asks, if God is not capable of evil, yet created everything, where did evil come from? Small little question on the problem of evil. Right. Well, yeah, and we have to touch on that a lot because as I teach through the Bible, so many passages, you know, are addressing the reality of evil, and so you got to talk about it. But even as it's worded there, I guess the reality of evil I want to respond initially with, you know, evil's not a thing. You know, I answered this recently on another format somewhere, but it, it's the absence of something. It's a description of something. Um, you know, and it's the absence of, of obedience, and even that's a theoretical reality, right? If, if, if my kid um, disobeys his mother today while I'm at work, well, you know, uh, he didn't create something in that act of disobedience, but it's a description of what he did. Uh, and, and so it is in, in the Bible. Evil is something we all see the effects of, but it's a description of something. It's a description of the rebellion against God. So that happened beginning with uh, Lucifer, right? And then obviously was through his temptation brought into mankind. And we say, look at all the evil in the world. And really all you're doing is describing uh, the category of actions by people that do things, here's how most people define evil, as do things that, that hurt other people. Uh, but really the Bible defines it as, and though many things that are sinful are hurting other people, it defines evil as sin, as rebellion against God's leadership, a rebellion against God's plans, a, a disregard of God's laws, the transgression of his rules of propriety and righteousness. So, um, you know, who created evil? See what I'm saying? That's a little bit of a misnomer because evil is simply a description of people's behavior. Mm -hmm. And then I guess you ask, who behaved badly? Well, when I ask that question with to my wife with my three kids, she has a name, right? I, I don't sit there and say, well, who was the weird neighbor that created evil in my home today? I, I, you know, she assigns it to a person that did something wrong. I guess uh, maybe a corollary to that or a, just an enhancement to that question is, you know, you, you get the, the statement that if God is all good, right. well, why does he allow this evil to right. be perpetrated within his creation? Right, right. Well, and that's big, and I preached on that quite a bit, particularly through Romans um, you know, that, that's a question that everybody grapples with. We deal with it in terms of what the Bible says in that this was part of God's uh, overall allowance, his plan that would ultimately bring praise and glory and honor to him for being a savior out of that bad situation. 
Uh, his redemptive work, you know, only really makes sense in the way of bringing praise to God as a redeemer against the backdrop of rebellion and sin. And so, you know, this was all a part of God's uh, allowance is a soft way to say it, but his decreed plan because he was going to bring out of that darkness, if you will, to use some symbolized language, uh, the, the light and the glory of God as redeemer, as savior, as one who plucks people from uh, the awful consequences of their own decisions. What do we tell somebody who, no matter where they turn sometimes, whether it's opening up a newspaper, looking at the news on TV, they, they just see um, just suffering and horrific things going on. How do we counsel someone who's seeing that and, and right. what should they yeah. be thinking? Well, most people go to parties and have a lot of fun every day uh, with a consciousness and that, that there's evil all over the world, but it doesn't seem to affect them until the pain of that evil touches their lives. So. You know, I find very few people that are really home, at, you know, just sick over the problem of evil in the world because uh, most of the people that are suffering right now in the average person's world isn't suffering. So, you know, all I'm saying is the awareness of this becomes a personal question when, you know, they're sick or their loved one is has been hit by a car or, you know, their dog died. I mean, it can be anything that now says, wait a minute, why is this happening? Um, and I know we've talked about this elsewhere, but this book uh, that I wrote on, you know, lifelines for tough times is really going to deal with the issue and does deal with the issue of the problem of evil. And I use as the backdrop of that my own issues in my own family, my own daughter's life. And so, you know, I think it's going to take more than a soundbite on a radio program before a sermon to adequately answer the question. But everyone has this problem. Philosophers have it, atheists have it, agnostics have it, and theists have it. And actually, one of the reasons theists would be so glad to offer this solution to this is because it seems to really provide the best answer, that in this temporary reality of evil, all of these, this evil is temporary, short-lived, under the control of God's sovereignty, and ultimately going to be wiped away. And so it's something that uh, God is going to deliver people out of. Those who put their trust in him will ultimately be delivered eternally from the evil of, and the consequences of their sin. So, you know, it definitely takes more study and more delving into the character of God that he is good in allowing this to bring out of that evil a redemptive purpose. And uh, we would say to people, hey, let's hop on to this great off-ramp, if you will, from a life of pain and evil. And though temporarily we're still all going to suffer and be sick and die, uh, the reality of what sin is is going to be put, there's an end that's been put to it, paid by the cross and inaugurated in the kingdom where there's no reference to it. And we'll look back on the problem of evil and we'll recognize it was temporary. Right? And the reason it happened, I guess, from a personal perspective is because God was gracious in giving us this redemptive option. And so for us, if the first person that sinned was responded to justly by God, right, there would be no one around to discuss the problem. That's one of the things I write in my book that, you know, if God weren't gracious, we wouldn't have the problem of sin because he would have cast every sinner out immediately from his presence into outer darkness and there'd be no one sitting around enjoying anything because we're all sinners, but God allows this for a time and has even matched the natural world that we live in 
Um, that was a consequence of sin. Cursed is the ground because of you. And so there are things like volcanoes and earthquakes and storms and cancer and all these other things that match the decisions of mankind. And uh, it seems indiscriminate to us, and it may feel that way, but all of this ultimately is, is under the parameters of God's care. And for Christians, here's the promise of Romans 8.28, even in the difficulties of life, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And God is gonna redeem this world and redeem our bodies and redeem everything in this world and creating a new place called the New Jerusalem where evil is going to be a distant memory. And we trust, obviously, with that promise that while we may not understand the evil that uh, we may be dealing with or the painful things we might be going through, that uh, God will work it out for good. And yeah, trust at the end of the day, we're, we'll we'll see that. And, sure. And but I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to throw up my hands and say I don't have a category for it because even when if my wife dies today. Right? I understand that this is what was promised in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, life for now is temporary, it's vulnerable, it's short-lived. There's going to be pain, there's going to be suffering. All of these things are going to be the reality because God promised it as a consequence to, to moral decisions and one day he's going to reverse it. So I want my dying wife to trust in Christ as she does, and I want me to trust in Christ. I want the people around me to trust in Christ because those who do will be delivered from the consequences of sin which ultimately is death. You know, can go on and on, but everything really ties back to the problem of, of sin and evil, if you will, in that that's the problem that Christ came to fix. Thank you, Pastor Mike. Um, in fact, you've spoken on this and, and how we trust in God's goodness in a world that's gone bad. And we're gonna listen to that message right now, and it's called An Upside Down World, Trusting God When Right Doesn't Seem Right. you ever noted the difference and the distance between all the things the preacher says and all the things that seem to really be the case in the real world? I mean, you know, preachers get up and they preach about good being, well, good. You know what I mean? You're supposed to do right things and be righteous and, and, and uh, be pure of heart and have a, a generous heart and, and selflessness. And man, good, that's good. Do, do that stuff. And the preacher will preach with uh, equal enthusiasm that bad is, well, it's just bad. I mean, the bad stuff and lust and greed and selfishness and self-promotion, all of that is bad. And, and don't do that. Bad is bad. Then you walk through the doors and you cruise your way into Monday morning and you find yourself in a world where really uh, bad is not so bad and good is really not always that good. Matter of fact, uh, bad is not always punished and good is not always rewarded. Inversely, it seems that bad is often rewarded. And sometimes you find that good is penalized. And if you're going to be good, then there's a price tag. Go to the Old Testament book, if you would, of uh, Exodus. Exodus chapter 4, there's an interesting discussion that begins in chapter 3. Moses, as you know, standing barefoot at this time before a burning bush in the middle of the desert, he's employed as the shepherd of his father-in-law's sheep. Not a very high, lofty pursuit or career goal for a guy that was trained in the best universities in Egypt, right? But there he is, after being rejected from doing God's work because he chose to do it in his way, he was benched for 40 years. You know the story, right? And as he stands there before God, barefoot, listening to God talk through this fire, God has a few instructions for him, and he goes over the instructions in chapters 3 and 4. And then chapter 4, drop your eyes all the way down to verse 21, he makes an interesting statement. Exodus 4, 21, Yahweh says to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have given you power to do. 
and I will impress Pharaoh, and he will open his heart to immediately release the people, and you will go into the wilderness to worship me and enter the promised land. Is that what it says? Text doesn't read that way. This is not a heartening, encouraging, commissioning sermon from God to the new minister, right? It does not say that he's going to receive them kindly. He says, go and perform the signs and wonders before Pharaoh, and I will harden his heart, and he will not let the people go. Can you imagine Moses standing there just saying, oi, what, what? I mean, God, you want me to go and deliver these guys, and you're going to harden his heart, and he's not going to let us go? Let me get this straight. I'm going for you. You're guaranteeing my failure here. I don't, I don't like that. You know, here's the thing. When in your life, the obstinate, the evil, the sinful, the non-Christian oppose and successfully oppose you. I just want to tell you this. This may blow your mind, but my principle is that God is sovereignly involved in that. God is somehow sovereignly involved in the issue of this prosperity, this temporary exaltation of those that do wrong. Why would, he, why would he do that? My answer to you is, I'm not sure. There's a variety of reasons spoken of in particular instances in the Bible. This one, by the way, is answered in Romans chapter 9. Maybe you'd want to turn there, or at least jot the reference down. In Romans chapter 9, it's discussed as to why God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And by the way, you don't become a jerk without full cooperation, right? I mean, there's 20 times in the Bible that it says that Moses' heart was hardened. Ten times it's attributed to God, and the other ten times, guess who gets full credit for it? Moses. I'm sorry. No, Moses is not. He's off the hook on that one. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Major blunder there. Did you catch that? Pharaoh hardens his heart ten times, and according to the Bible, God hardens his heart ten times. So, why did that happen? Why would God even be a part of this? Why would God... Let this guy do that. I mean, and you got to give God credit no matter what, because if you got a God that has the power to stop it and he doesn't stop it, is he's not still responsible, right? I mean, let's not try and protect God's honor that much by not giving him what he rightly deserves, and that is he is the sovereign king of the universe, and when bad happens, he's let it happen at best, we have to say, right? In the text, here is the explanation for Moses' problem with the hard heart of Pharaoh. Romans chapter 9, verse 17, what does it say? It says, the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, you obstinate, mean, manipulating, hard-hearted person. Why? That I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you think that if I read the passage correctly and it said, go perform these signs and his heart will be opened and he'll let the people go, we would have no plagues, we would have no battle, we'd have no conflict, we'd have none of the stuff that happened in the book. We'd have a very short book of Exodus, right? You also wouldn't have God flexing his muscle and establishing something that would reverberate in the minds of the people in Mesopotamia for centuries following. And that is, don't mess with Israel. Their God is serious. He's strong. As a matter of fact, the phrase that you will find popping up over and over and over again after the book of Exodus is the fear of God came upon Israel's enemies because they remembered or knew what had happened in Egypt. Sometimes, in upside-down situations, God has a purpose. He has a purpose. Ask me what it is. I don't know. I don't know what it is in your situation, why he's letting you go through some situation where the bad guys win. But I can tell you, sometimes in the Old Testament, Israel's history, it was because he wanted to show how strong he was. He wanted to set up opposition to himself and cause the showdown so that he could show that he was God. 
If you drop your eyes down in chapter 9, you'll also see that sometimes he lets people and situations and societies get bad just so he can pluck people out and show how merciful he is. That's strange. Drop down to verse 22. He says, what if God, Romans 9, 22, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? You notice when you go to look at a costly jewel like a diamond at the store, they don't put it against a white sheet or they don't put it on some brilliant lit mirror. They put it against something black and dark and velvet. They want to contrast the brilliance of this stone against some backdrop of evil. God said, what if I allowed jerks to be jerks? What if you give me the responsibility of even saying I helped to participate in making it that bad, but I did it to show how gracious and merciful I am in plucking people from the midst of a wicked and dark society to show just how gracious and good I am. That could be. Sometimes against the backdrop of a terrible work situation that you find yourself in, God may allow it to be so, so that you can shine just a little bit brighter and be an object and a display and a billboard of God's glory and mercy and grace against the backdrop of a very dark world. Who knows? Maybe it's just to prove that he's God. In the book of Revelation, I know these things are going to happen because God's batting a thousand on predictive prophecy, right? The Bible says 10 kings will come in some world government, not totally united according to the book of Daniel, but united fair enough to call it a one world government. There will be 10 political leaders. Those 10 will be overthrown, three of them at least, by a leader. He will take charge of all of them. That's going to happen and people are then going to smack their heads and say this prophecy stuff in the Bible was true. Go back further to the Pentateuch when the 70-year captivity of Israel in 586 B.C. was predicted. God has been showing that against the backdrop and rise of sinful nations and the collapse of them and the calamities of all the evil in the world, as he jots it out and shows through extreme examples of good and bad that he is God because he can call the future. He can write it out before it ever happens. And so it is, by the way, the only reason we trust this book above the others. You know why it is, right? You know what sets this one apart, don't you? It's got the fingerprint of God on it. How do I know that? Because he says things that have happened before they ever happened. And God is batting a thousand. And sometimes he just wants to show that he's God by allowing these things to take place. I don't know why he's allowing it in your life. All I know is that in the Bible, the world's going to be upside down. And sometimes bad people are going to win. The struggle, though, for us is that sometimes good people lose. That hurts probably more than anything, right? The world's upside down. It's a little mixed up. Revelation chapter 17 illustrates for us in an extreme way the way that bad people win and good people lose. It says in verse number 12 that these ten horns and ten kings who hadn't received a kingdom would receive it and would have that power with the beast. The beast, if you'll recall, and you need to remember in chapter 13, the beast is the one who opposes God's people. It says in, in 13.7 that he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And the text says in verse 14, the king and the beast will make war against the lamb. Bracket that off, the lamb. Show me a place in the book of Revelation where they war against the lamb. Who is the lamb, by the way? Christ, right? Christ is the lamb as designated in the book of Revelation. Can I just correct the little misperception you may have about this? They don't fight the lamb. They don't fight the, I mean, if you want to call it a war, all God does, Christ steps in to finish a war that's already started. And it's not much of a war. He doesn't even get his hands dirty. He just walks in and says something and all the enemies die. That's not much of a war. They're not making war against the lamb. They're making war against the people of the lamb. But notice how the language is always put so closely together in the Bible that when you make war against the lamb, you make war against 
his people or vice versa. If you make war against God's people, you make war against God. A lot of the people in the trib, the best people, the virtuous, the ones that keep God's rules, the ones that do right, the ones that don't compromise, they are attacked and they are killed. Now, fine, we're not living in an extreme situation in our particular culture, not that there aren't others in our time that do have to give their lives for their commitment to Christ. But we need to see that whatever struggles we face for the sake of our Christianity falls right into this principle here. That God in an upside-down world has allowed the world to cause us grief. Verse 14, they make war against the Lamb. Well, historically, according to the prophecies of this book, they're not making war against the Lamb. That's an indirect statement. Ultimately, they are, but really, their target in the crosshairs of their weapons is not God, it's people. It's God's people. And I'll tell you what, no matter how you're losing in your life right now, because you've stood up and maintained what the sermons have said week after week, that right is right and good is good and bad is bad and sin is sin, when you maintain that in the world and you lose because of it, it's not uncommon. The world's an upside-down place. Just remember this. God says when they mess with you, when they set you back, when they ridicule you, persecute you, they're messing with me. That's some comfort in that. Even though God is patient to let them do that for a while, and I wish he'd stop sooner, he lets the delay happen, so there is some pain and suffering. But this, the point is, God says, I'm taking that all personally. Isaiah the prophet wrote in Isaiah 43, just jot the reference down, 1 and 2. He says, this is what Yahweh says, the one who created you, the Lord. O Jacob, the one who he formed, O Israel, fear not, I've redeemed you, God says. I've called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters... I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they won't sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you won't be burned. I'm going to be there. I'll hold you with my right hand. Now, I would like to take a vote. I don't want to really have to go through the fire or walk through the flood or get all the mess that it talks about in, 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 in uh, Isaiah 43. But the text doesn't give me an exemption. It only points me to the fact that I'm supposed to have intimacy with God the whole time. And that's the problem. We're too busy crying foul sometimes when we should be saying in the midst of this upside-down world, when I receive persecution for doing what's right, I need to be seeking and cultivating and enjoying the intimacy of God through the midst of it because he promises never to forsake and abandon his people. Hebrews 13, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. We need to cling to that thing when right doesn't seem right in our world. Remember, guys, he never abandons his people. That's the picture in Revelation. He always vindicates his people. Take a look at it again. It says in verse number 14, they make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them. He doesn't overcome them right away. It's all delayed, but He will overcome them because He is, by the way, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. God in His sovereignty has allowed the world in which we live to be completely out of control and upside down. What we need to do is to entrust our hearts to a God who promises to one day turn it right side up. The perspective we've shared, I hope this will serve as an encouragement and an anchor to your heart this week. All the wrongs we feel now, one day God will make right. Biblical encouragement today on Focal Point. You're listening to a message from Mike Fabares called Trusting God When Right Doesn't Seem Right. For more resources and to download our mobile app, visit focalpointradio.org. You know, the influence of sin isn't just a global problem, it's an inner problem as well. We realize that we all have sinned and need God's grace. So if you want to learn more about what it means to be saved, 
or you know someone who is questioning their faith, we highly recommend a book written by beloved 19th century pastor Charles H. Spurgeon. It's titled All of Grace, and it clearly outlines God's plan of salvation. Here's how to request it. The book comes as our way of saying thanks for your gift in support of this ministry. We never charge for anyone to hear Mike's teaching, whether it's on the radio, online, or on the Focal Point mobile app. But all of those listening platforms come with costs to the ministry, and your support bridges that gap so we can continue providing these messages free of charge. Will you join with us today? Go to focalpointradio.org or call us at 888-320-5885. And be sure to ask for the book, All of Grace. We're committed to being here for you each day, but we can only do so because friends like you who donate to make this ministry possible. Thank you. Now, maybe today is your first time listening and you aren't quite ready to give just yet. We'd still love to hear from you. And when you get in touch, we'll send you a free booklet outlining basic beliefs about who God is. Request Attributes of God at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again next time as we continue exploring the depths of Scripture right here on Focal Point. program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.